This is Bradbury 100, celebrating the centenary year of American writer Ray Bradbury. I'm Phil Nichols of bradburymedia.co.uk. Each week on the podcast, we look at some aspect of Bradbury's life and work and interview someone who is inspired by Ray. Hello again, and welcome to Bradbury 100. My guest today is a man who has read Something Wicked This Way Comes out loud multiple times. He is an actor, voice artist, essayist, and much more, and his name is David Loftus. I had a lot of fun talking to David, and the conversation was wide-ranging, but there's a couple of topics that came up that I'd like to expand on a little before we get to the interview. First off, you'll hear us mention Harlan Ellison a few times. Harlan, who died three years ago, was a short story writer, a screenwriter, an essayist, who was, well, the term force of nature is what best describes him. If you Google his name, you'll find loads of links about how controversial he was, that he was always suing people for stealing his ideas all of which gives a somewhat distorted picture of the great writer that Harlan Ellison was. Oh, and by the way, he won all of those lawsuits. That doesn't happen unless the facts are on your side. Anyway, Harlan was a great writer, and like Bradbury, he was especially a master of the short form, which is why he won countless awards for short stories and TV scripts and so on. I know a lot of people see Bradbury and Ellison as two vastly different writers, but I've always been struck by the similarities rather than the differences. Okay, Ray tended to write about small towns, uh, kids, sweet old people, while Harlan tended to write about cities and gangs and uh, the bad things that people do to each other. But let's not forget that Ray wrote of many primal horrors in The October Country and Dark Carnival. And let's not forget that Harlan wrote more than his fair share of nostalgic stories. Bradbury's short story, Hail and Farewell, is about the tragedy of a boy who cannot grow up. Ellison's Jefty is Five is a short story about the tragedy of a boy who cannot grow up. In both cases, the reader can't help wondering whether the boy in question represents some aspect of the author. Bradbury wrote several stories where an adult meets a younger version of himself, including his stage play of Dandelion Wine, where someone turns up in Greentown who turns out to be, spoiler alert, an older version of Douglas Spaulding, the central character. And guess what? Ellison used this theme too, in at least one story, One Life Furnished in Early Poverty. Bradbury wrote a couple of doppelganger stories, and so too did Ellison. Now often, but not always, often Ellison's stories tend towards a darker outcome. Ellison's lead characters are often more pained, more troubled than Bradbury's. But at their best, both Bradbury and Ellison are masters of using the short story to focus, to magnify a longing or a suffering through the use of fantasy elements. Whenever you hear someone talking about fantasy fiction as being escapist, 
They clearly haven't read the masters. Both Bradbury and Ellison can draw you into a curious situation and then break your heart or scare the bejesus out of you. Anyway, David Loftus, my guest this week, did some proofreading for Harlan Ellison and also had the opportunity to watch Harlan do his famous stunt of writing a story in a shop window. So more on that in a while. The other thing I wanted to talk about before the interview is Ray Bradbury as an audiobook performer, something else that comes up in my conversation with David. We've talked before on the podcast about whether or not Bradbury's fiction is inherently perfect for reading aloud. We heard from Brian Sibley, the dramatist, who has taken Ray's short story dialogue and turned it or adapted it to be performed by actors, from Bill Oberst Jr., who has used Bradbury's stories to construct his one-person show, and from storyteller Megan Wells, who doesn't actually read the stories but internalises them, tells the stories. Now, a lot of writers will perform their own works, either in public appearances or when audiobooks are made from their works, but there aren't many who have done so much of it as Ray Bradbury. Ray's audiobook performances include two recordings of Fahrenheit 451, for instance. Back in the 1970s, he recorded an LP record, remember those, of selections from Fahrenheit, and he interspersed the reading with some explanation of the authorial choices he made when writing it. And then in 2001, he did a complete reading of Fahrenheit. But this was a much older Ray. He was by now in his 80s, and he'd suffered a stroke. But despite this, he still gives an energetic performance of his own work. Probably my favourite audiobooks of Ray's are two sets issued on audio cassette remember those, in 1986. One is an unabridged Martian Chronicles, and the other is called Fantastic Tales of Ray Bradbury. In both cases, Ray puts in comments between the stories, talking about their origins. Some would argue that audiobooks should be performed by actors, not writers. But when you hear Bradbury performing one of his stories, you kind of get why the language is the way it is. It's his voice there on the page. So now let's meet my guest for this week, David Loftus. Joining me today is David Loftus. David is an actor, voice performer, writer, reviewer, editor, and much more. David, welcome to Bradbury 100. Delighted to be here. So tell me, when did you first discover the works of Ray Bradbury? Honestly, apart from Lewis Carroll, I didn't read hardly any fantasy or science fiction before probably about the age of 15 or 16, though I was an early and heavy reader in general. I was vaguely aware of Bradbury by freshman year of high school because a girl on my forensics team, you know, competitive speech tournaments, did a dramatic interp reading of uh, the episode from Dandelion Wine in which old Mrs. Bentley tussles with the, the disrespectful and ambivalent children and eventually comes to accept their inaccurate vision of reality. Never in a million trillion years, which I liked a lot. The following year, sophomore year, my English teacher required us to read Something Wicked This Way Comes. It was in our required reading list, along with Shakespeare's Julius Caesar and uh, 
I'm sure I can't remember what else we read that year, but I adored it immediately and forevermore. And so I read a lot more Bradbury shortly thereafter. Long After Midnight was published in my senior year of high school, and it will always have a special place in my heart among his short story collections. It was one of the first books I reviewed for publication. It was spring of my senior year of high school. I was 18 and preparing to head off to college, uh, but uh, I can't even remember how it came about that I was writing little book reviews and, and essays for a free weekly shopper newspaper in my town of Coos Bay, which is on the south coast of Oregon. No pay for that early writing gig, but one of my earliest bylined pieces. That must have felt really good. I remember the first time I saw my name in print. I, I was oh, I was quite taken aback by it. You say that Dandelion Wine and Something Wicked were your first real exposures to Bradbury. So it was it was very much that Green Town setting, rather than the short stories. Does that shape your sort of overall feeling about what Bradbury is? Yeah, probably. From fan discussions online, I've gotten the sense that a lot of people are big fans of Dark Carnival and his witches and, and his trolls and his dwarves. And, and that's not what first comes to my mind when I think of Ray Bradbury. You know, not even Fahrenheit 451 or the Mars stories. I, I very much associate him with, with Middle America and connecting to both the generations before your childhood, you know, his, his parents, his, you know, his, his story about his father. Yeah, that tends to be the first thing I think of, as, as well as the magic of something wicked and the carnival in that book, in which it's definitely a, an evil force as opposed to that big happy family of the early dark carnivals <laughs> stories. <laughs> I think it's interesting what you said there about connections to his family. One of the things I feel when I'm reading the Greentown stories is a sense that Greentown goes back a long way because obviously the stories were sort of published in the 1950s and after. Some of them were written earlier than that. They're all of them set earlier than that but of course they're full of old people who would have been born in the previous century. So it really feels like the whole thing goes back a lot further than the actual words on the page do. I don't know if that makes any sense. And two of the stories that I know more than any others are late, comparatively late Greentown stories from the Long After Midnight collection. The Utterly Perfect Murder about the, I, I can't remember how old he is now, 47 or something like that, 48, who goes back to Greentown to get revenge on the kid who bullied him when he was 12. The Utterly Perfect Murder, wonderful story. And... One Timeless Spring, which is about this boy who gets this obsession that he thinks his parents are poisoning him, and he gets really obsessive and paranoid about everything that's happening around them. And it's a metaphor for realizing he's growing older and ultimately is mortal and will die, although it never says that explicitly, but that's how I read it. And yet he gives in because he falls in love with a girl. And so it's called One Timeless Spring. And I've memorized both of those stories and, and recited them from memory in the past because I loved them so much. Wow. <laughs> so this ability to memorize is linked, presumably, to the fact that you also perform these stories. I mean, you've, you've talked to, about um, reading something wicked aloud multiple times. Tell us about that. Tell us about your performing, your reading, your acting. I'm fond of saying I'm probably the only person on the planet who has read Something Wicked This Way Comes out loud, cover to cover, four times. 
I don't imagine even Stefan Rudnicki, the veteran audiobook reader who recorded something wicked for Blackstone Audio, could honestly say that. My parents gave me records as a child of the Living Shakespeare series, which came out in the early 60s and had great British actors like uh, Michael Redgrave and Sir Donald Wolfett and, and the very young Maggie Smith, who had a gorgeous voice back then, and she must have been a gorgeous woman. I haven't seen too many photos of her as a young actress, but they were doing excerpts of, of Shakespeare plays, and I, and I absorbed them as a six-year-old. I was reciting bits of Shakespeare, which charmed the heck out of my grandmother and her friends. My parents read aloud to me as a child. My mom read French children's books as well as English. And then when I was 13, I think, my grandmother, who lived next door at that point, fell and on the dance floor and broke her hip. And she had to have a steel ball and socket joint put in and was laid up for several months recuperating. And so I started reading the newspaper to her, news articles from magazines, and eventually whole books. And once she was up and around again... I still went over to read to her. So I read her David Niven's autobiography, The Moon's a Balloon. I read her Frank Capra's autobiography, The Name Above the Title. And I read her a fair amount of Ray Bradbury and Harlan Ellison. Now, she had grown up as a child in Fairbanks, Alaska Territory, where she discovered you wanted big, fat novels to last through the long, dark winters of 10 to 40 below. And as I said, I continued to read to her once she was up and around again. I don't imagine there are too many guys who have read Harlan Ellison's A Boy and His Dog or his Jack the Ripper story, A Prowler in the City at the Edge of the World, to their grandmother either. Best I can recall, uh, the second time I read uh, Something Wicked uh, was in my mid-20s to my girlfriend at the time, who was an artist and liked to work on her paintings and collages while I read to her. The third time was to my future wife, about seven or eight years after that, and we continued to read books aloud to each other over dinners. And finally, number four, I recorded the book for a closed-circuit radio broadcast service for the blind and elderly housebound listeners in the Portland, Oregon area where I live, a broadcast service called Golden Hours, and I made a cassette copy for myself on that occasion, though I haven't actually listened to it yet. Do you find something different in the book each time you read? You know, I haven't really thought about that. I've certainly had that experience with other books, but I, <laughs> I'm so intimate with something wicked, it's hard for me to separate them out and remember. I just remember Bradbury himself in an interview saying that he, he would like to read his own books from time to time. And one time he took the book off his shelf and started reading it, and he found his father was in the book. And he, he hadn't really realised that he'd written it about his own father. Even the author can find something there that they didn't know was there. Are there any other Bradbury stories that you've read multiple times or performed or recorded? I'm trying to think of all the ones that I have read over the years because I've read aloud at libraries, at bookstores. My bank branch allowed me to do evening readings after closing hours as a community outreach sort of thing for a year or so. And then in the year just before COVID, in 2019, I found the perfect venue, a pub, a tap room that was a used bookstore called Rose City Book Pub here in Portland. And so for just a little over a year before COVID hit, I did a monthly, what I call story time for grownups. And, and I've been doing it off and on for so long that I have a huge array of material that I can easily draw on, even if you said, can you do it right now? 
I've read Dorothy Parker. I've read Dave Barry, Woody Allen. I've read A.A. A. Milne. I've read Ambrose Bierce. I've read Joseph Heller. O. Henry is one of my favorites. But one of the things I've done several times over the years is Irish Ray Bradbury. And, and I, you know, I don't hear people talk about those stories much online. Of course, it really all came alive for him when he went to Ireland in the 50s, was it? When John Huston hired him to write the screenplay for Moby Dick. And Bradbury spent the better part of a year living in Ireland and wrestling with the, the irascible director. And he wrote at least a dozen stories and probably more, most of them quite realistic. Often there is no supernatural element. There's no fantasy. It's portraits of life on the street and, and the odd people that you might run into there. The two I've enjoyed reading the most, I think they were both published in the early 70s in I Sing the Body Electric. I think both of the Irish stories that I love the most is The Cold Wind and the Warm, where a bunch of crusty old Irish drinkers in the pub encounter a bunch of flighty, artsy, basically homosexuals who have come up from the Mediterranean area to check out Dublin. And at first, of course, the locals are very nervous and upset and, and they, they think this is very weird. But eventually, one of them realizes, you know, we have a lot in common. And, and so it's a lovely, lovely story. The other one is The Conflagration Up at the Place, something like that. And that's the one uh, set early in the Troubles. And a bunch of working class guys are going to rise up, participate in the Irish Revolution against the wealthy folks. And, and they're going to rob and loot the home of the local English aristocrat and steal all his art and et cetera, et cetera. And, and of course, Bradbury being Bradbury, the story has this very interesting twist where everything turns out all right. But, uh, you know, there are lots of wonderful voices, character voices. That's part of what makes those stories so funny is because they have really large casts compared to a lot of other Bradbury stories, many of which are very intense and involve just one or two or three people. These two stories have a dozen at least and closer in some cases to two dozen different character voices. So that makes them fun to do for a, for a voice actor. How do you keep them all separate, though? Because I imagine you would try and do an Irish accent, wouldn't you, when you're right, reading right. those? How do you keep them all sounding different? Honestly, I don't practice stories, reading stories ahead of time all that often because I'm pretty good at it. But those stories I practiced, I have to assign a particular character voice to each one. And I have notes saying, this one is very crusty and low. This one will be kind of high and, and tenor and flute-like. and and. You know, there are all sorts of things you can do with your voice to uh, change the sound and uh, and give yourself a, 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 diff a very different sort of character without too much trouble if you know how to do it. <laughs> Man of a thousand voices. <laughs> Who did they used to say that about? Oh, it was probably Lon Chaney, wasn't it? Man of a thousand yes. faces. Oh, well, it was Faces, yeah. Launch any man of a thousand faces. I, I bet somebody's applied it to somebody with voices, but it's not someone that immediately comes to mind. I, you know, I would probably give it to Mel Blanc myself. Yeah, I was going to say it's going to be him more than anyone. <laughs> Have you read the, the sort of novel that he made out of those Irish stories, Green Shadow, White Whale? Are you familiar with that one? I, I, I know I read it. The one that sticks out at me is the one where he turned... John Houston into this monstrous 
Banshee or oh no no the the women I, isn't it that the women that this this man has used and victimized come back to to haunt him was that was that the story that that one kind of sticks with me yeah so sort of that yeah it uh, it is a, a kind of revenge on Houston story <laughs> I read that one long long ago just once uh, it it didn't it didn't stick that much with me but you know there there isn't very much Bradbury I haven't read. Do you think Bradbury's work particularly lends itself to being read aloud? <laughs> I'm sure neither you nor most of the listeners of this podcast will be surprised to hear that my answer would be absolutely yes. Anyone who has even a nodding acquaintance with Bradbury's prose will have noticed the beauty of his language, the dance of alliteration and assonance, whether you've read or like his official poetry or not, I think even the average person would call his fiction poetic. It feels good. It tastes good in the mouth. Quite apart from the rich, startling, scary, and empathetic meaning of the words, it's great to read aloud. And when it comes to a set piece like the arrival of the uh, carnival aboard an ancient steam train and it's set up in the middle of the night in chapter 12 of Something Wicked, quote, like old movies, the silent theater haunted with black and white ghosts, silvery mouths opening to let moonlight smoke out, gestures made in silence so hushed you could hear the wind fizz the hair on your cheeks. Unquote. Well, it's like witnessing an extended magic trick done with words. The magic books of imagination itself. Fantastic. <laughs> Have you heard Bradbury's own readings of his books as audiobooks? Well, yeah, I, I think I first discovered vinyl recordings by Listening Library back in the very early 80s when I lived in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and they had a couple of discs that I took home and immediately recorded, made cassette copies of. Now, you would know he did a bit of, of writing for radio. He did a bit of acting for radio. His good friend Stan Freeberg prevailed on him to do make appearances in TV commercials, and he's a pretty decent reader of his work. He's not as manic as Harlan Ellison, who is also a great reader and recorder, but he does lovely character voices and he's got a nice warm flow and timbre. So I think I must have at least 15 or 16 hours of Bradbury recordings I've uh, collected over the years. There was a collection by, um, I think, the Audio Library in 1985, and then I've got a series of seven cassettes that Oddly enough, I looked at them last night when I was preparing to chat with you, and I found their copyright 1984 by Brigham Young University. And I'm like, how did that come about? Those <laughs> ones must be the Bradbury 13 radio series, because that was produced at Brigham Young University. Ah. And do you know when they originally broadcast? Yeah, it was early 80s, about 84, I think. Ah, okay. But that was kind of peak Bradbury, I think. There was lots of stuff coming out in the early 80s. I mean, he was publishing new material in the early 80s. Um, I think Death is a Lonely Business came out in 85 or something like that. So he was very active. He was writing for his TV series. He was adapting his own stories. Other people were adapting them. He was recording audiobooks. You know, so he was really frantically busy in the 80s. I don't know how he managed it. Oh, yeah. Uh, some years ago, you wrote an appreciation of Something Wicked for the Book Drum website, which seems yeah. to have disappeared now. I've found an archived version of it. Book Drum was an online British initiative where each book 
would get its own extensive portrait, and people could volunteer to work up a portrait of a book that they loved. And they were extensive. They were sizable. Each book portrait would include a summary of the plot, a bio of the author, a review in which whoever was creating the page could write a personal essay about the book, a section about geographical settings, the, the places where things happen in the book, a glossary of unusual words that turn up in its pages. I think the unique facet of this particular project, something that they called bookmarks, wherein you would describe any literary, cultural, historical, artistic, and other references in the story, ideally with photo illustrations. And that's a lot of writing in itself. But we also had to learn to maneuver through the complex software program the founders had designed and negotiate the subtleties of avoiding copyright violation with the photos. Now, to generate a healthy amount of content for the launch, the founders ran a contest with cash prizes for the best entries. I was inclined to profile some of my favorite books anyway, even if there wasn't a possibility of financial reward. I don't recall what the first prize amounted to, but, but my Something Wicked portrait received one of several second place prizes, which was worth 100 pounds sterling. And I also completed a book portrait of uh, Milan Kundera's The Unbearable Lightness of Being, and I started once for Catch-22 and Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip Dick. But I didn't finish those before my interest went elsewhere and then there were other demands on my time. Book Drum survived for a number of years, but eventually collapsed. And all of our work got taken offline, as you found. But fortunately, I saved copies of at least the, uh, the prose I wrote. And I have uploaded my review essay of Something Wicked onto my own Patreon site. So it can be read there. Oh, that's terrific. Yeah. It's it's a shame how we assume that everything on the internet is there forever. Well, I mean, you, you get experts to track it down for you. Everything is forever, but not for us regular Joes. That's right. <laughs> Mere mortals. <laughs> what did you think of the film version of Something Wicked? Well, as with anybody who is contemplating a film version of a favorite book. And I had this experience with uh, John Fowles, The French Lieutenant's Woman, and a number of other books. You look up upon the project both with excitement and dread because you're afraid of what they're going to do <laughs> to the, the rich story and the pictures in your head and whether they're just going to do it justice. That's what it comes down to. I, I must have gone to see it on the big screen when it first came out. I liked the two boys. Jason Robards was a decent casting decision for the father, but it left so much out and changed so many things. And they have to. Uh, some film projects actually manage to make a virtue of this and, and they do something different but parallel to what the book did. Harold Pinter, the, the author of the screenplay for The French Lieutenant's Woman, did that. He, he did something in the film medium that was kind of like what Fowles did in the book. But all in all, I found something wicked. It's a beautiful film. It has that those kind of wonderful autumnal colors, the browns and yellows and reds that you associate with Greentown, with Bradbury. But I was terribly disappointed with what they did with the witch, the dust witch, making her young and beautiful as opposed to ancient and creaky and and she didn't get to do half of the things that she does in the book i think the only thing that i thought was really terrific about the film was their mr dark 
It was the first time I'd ever seen Jonathan Price. It's one of the first times he was ever seen on film on this side of the pond. He'd, he'd done a lot of stage work and a bit of TV in Britain. And he wasn't exactly what I pictured as Mr. Dark from the book, but he was excellent and and really did a great job with it. And of course, I was delighted to see his career take off on this side of the ocean. A few years later, he was in Brazil. I recognized him right away in the, in the adventures of Baron Munchausen. And I can't remember if I have a copy of the film on DVD or VHS or not. I, I've never watched it since that first viewing when it first came out. I did send a fan letter to to Bradbury about that time. I can't remember if it was after or before the film came out, but I asked him, how do you feel about your film? And and he sent me an autographed movie poster in which he'd written with that silver ink that sort of has a has a little bit of lavender or purple outline to it. And he says, I love my film. He's He's always very positive about stuff. I don't know if you've ever read interviews much later where he may have expressed more skepticism or doubt or concern, but... <laughs> that was his reaction at the time. He did drift a bit on that view of the film over the years, but not a huge amount. I mean, it, in his sort of last interviews, he would say things like, it's not a great film, but a nice one. Uh-huh. Um, and he, he, <laughs> he felt quite parental about it. But the one thing he did keep doing is he kept claiming that he, well, in the, in the final interviews, he would he would actually come out and say, I directed that film. <laughs> and you just know he didn't. He didn't direct the film. He might have had some say in the reshoots, and I know that he did because I've studied all the production documentation for the film, so I can say that, yes, he did have a hand in the re-editing of the film. But he, no, you didn't direct it, Ray. <laughs> you're, you're, you're exaggerating. But that's what he tended to do. Over time, his accounts would get sort of bigger and bigger and bigger of everything that he did. But that's because he's a storyteller. You know, that's what he does. <laughs> it's kind of the same with Harlan Ellison. He tended to get a little fuzzy on the details, but he was wonderful to ride with. Yeah. <laughs> you, you said that you'd, you'd written to Bradbury. So were you surprised when he wrote back? I, I wouldn't say surprised because I've written letters to various people and sometimes nothing happens, and sometimes they write back. Uh, it's a crapshoot. It's like fly fishing or something. You throw something out and see if anything happens. And But I understand Ray, Bradbury took a lot of trouble to try to respond to as much of his mail as he could. He did. Yeah, it's quite remarkable, really. Are there any other authors who come close to Bradbury for you, either in terms of their writing style or the, the, the kind of addiction to their writing that you feel? I don't think I could think of anything in terms of writing style. Bradbury's about as sui generous as you get. I discovered John Fowles, the Magus and the French Lieutenant's Woman, maybe just a little later than Bradbury, that tender age of 16, and just uh, adored his work, and Harlan Ellison. I have a lot of magazines and six vinyl LPs and a lot of cassettes, both bootlegged and official that, that Allison recorded. I admire Richard Powers, I think, as a storyteller novelist, as an intellectual storyteller. He's probably the best replacement for John Fowles since Fowles died some while back. Do you see any connection between Bradbury and Ellison? Because I do, but I find very few other people do. Well, they liked each other very much. Bradbury championed Ellison's work early on. 
They're from different generations, but they liked each other very much and they were good friends. And because Bradbury never learned how to drive, Ellison often drove him to conventions and events. So they spent a lot of time together. But as for similarities in their writing, ostensibly, they look very different. Ellison is profane, violent, but I think I would agree that they have certain similarities that I, they probably saw in each other, and I would describe that as passion. They really threw themselves into their stories, both in the sense of wanting to evoke an effect, an emotional effect from the reader, but also throwing themselves in the sense of putting their own character and beliefs and faiths into their characters and their plots. So I, I would characterize as passion, vividness, a love of, of writing. I mean, I could name several words that are favorite Bradbury words, darning needle dragonfly and, and things like that, that turn up over and over again. And Ellison, it'd be widdershins. They have certain words that, that pop out of you that like, that's a Bradbury word. That's a Harlan Ellison word. So those are two, a couple of things off the top of my head that I would say that, that they share. And they, they do have some stories that have sort of parallel plotting to them. There's a, a Bradbury story called Hail and Farewell, which is about, a, well, I was going to say a boy. It's a, a, a creature that is a, appears to be a child of about 12 years old and never ages. So he can only spend a certain length of time with a family before he has to move on to another family who will accept him. And if he stays too long, people think he's weird because he should have grown up by now. And that reminds me very much of Jeff D is Five. Jeff D is Five, yeah, yeah. Now, the stories take very different turns, but they, they have a very similar premise. Well, I, I think the similarity is that both of them reached into their own childhood as well as the concept of childhood, what it means, what's great about it, what's horrifying and disgusting and upsetting and, and limiting about being a child. I think that's a similarity. All of that connects to mortality and that we are mortal and that we die. I mean, both of them also wrote stories about getting near the end, losing a loved one. Bradbury's story about meeting the ghost of his father in the graveyard and uh, Ellison's essay, his eulogy to his mother. Apart from the superficial similarity of connecting to a beloved loved one, there's that underlying sense of we are all mortal. We are all going to die. We are all going to lose everything that matters to us. And I think that's at the bottom of all writing, but it's not explicit. It's not something that a lot of writers necessarily face head on and, and press into your face. They may not even be aware of it themselves. Ellison and Bradbury were, I think. If I can kind of diverge a bit, I became a serious actor, or at least a busy actor of stage and video in my late 40s. I've only been doing a lot of acting and video work in the last 15 years or so. So I wasn't like those young people who were waiting tables and hoping and thinking of moving to LA or New York. It started just as a hobby and something fun to do and got more and more interesting at a time when the boomer generation was getting up there and suddenly there was a lot more work for people who looked like me. And I thought about why do I enjoy acting? Well, one, it's a very instinctual gut level activity something that's very different from what I prefer to do, because I'm a perfectionist, I'm intellectual, I like to work it all out before I take the first step, and you cannot do that in acting. You have to step out and you do it on the fly. 
And so it's very different from the kind of things that I normally do, which is refreshing. But more than that, I think I've come to feeling that acting allows me temporarily to escape from mortality. I get to be somebody else for 15 minutes or two hours. And I'm no longer me. I'm no longer mortal. I'm no longer heading toward that inevitable ending. I totally forget that I'm mortal for a short time because I'm so busy being somebody else. And I think that's part of what underlies the pleasure I get from acting. It all comes down to having to deal with and not being ready to deal with and being afraid of this important thing, this essential thing about existence in different ways. And a lot of people do it by running away all the time, totally diverting themselves, distracting themselves, denying it, making up stories about how it's not really going to happen. This, of course, is my own spiritual point of view here. But I think that's what's happening. And curiously, a lot of people, they try and escape that inevitability. But a lot of people do it through reading horror stories and fantasy stories that confront death head on. It's weird, isn't it? We're, we're trying to avoid that one thing. And yet we we're drawn to to watch it happen. Well, I'm not particularly a fan or heavy reader of horror or that sort of thing. But, you know, just off the top of my head, I would say it's a way of setting it outside yourself. It is a kind of facing it, but it's also a kind of denying it because it's it's out there. The threat is out there. It's it's taking down other people. I'm safe here watching. That's certainly the case with horror movies, because most of them at least the person you identify with, certainly historically, survived. After all, this horror and, and nastiness and all these other people getting cut down around you. You came out the other side okay. And and you, certainly as a reader, you come out of it, ah, you know, it didn't really happen to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, there's a, a, a silly question that I ask everyone who comes on this podcast, and that is, if you were to be marooned on a desert island and you could have just one Bradbury item with you, what would you choose? Well, Something Wicked is obviously by far my favorite Bradbury book. I'm, I'm not really that big a fan of uh, Fahrenheit 451 uh, or, or even the Martian Chronicles. But if I'm going to be marooned on a desert island, I'll want variety to help me survive rather than a single long story, no matter how rich and imaginative and beautiful and life-affirming it is. So I'd have to go with the, the 1980 collection of 100 best stories, the stories of Ray Bradbury. I, I have a signed first edition I bought by mail from a, a bookstore called My Book House in Irvine, California. And I've also read all of those stories aloud. I, I recorded all 100 stories for Golden Hours, that broadcast service for blind and elderly housebound listeners. And I made a cassette copy of that too. So I'll have at least 10 or 12 hours of, of me to listen to doing Bradbury when I'm old and I can no longer read with my eyes. <laughs> I can also see you standing on the desert island, with nobody else there, but you'll be reading those stories to the birds oh, and the fish. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That, those stories will people the island around me. <laughs> That's terrific. Do you consider yourself to be a kind of a completist collector? Well, well, not in terms of Bradbury. I mean, there's so much there that it'd be a huge financial commitment. And I'd already pretty much committed to uh, Harlan Ellison. Now, I don't buy everything. By Ellison that comes out, and I know there are people that are, so I feel like I'm not that crazy. You know, 
if you if you added up all the pulp magazines and interview magazines and comic books and graphic novels and the hardbound books, many of them autographed, I must have 450, 500 items and some unique ones that nobody has because I did some work for Harlan and I have the autographed proof copies of, of books I worked on for him with my red markings. So nobody else has those. But as a completist, no, I don't go out of my way to get everything. With um, both Bradbury and Ellison, just when I thought that I had everything that I needed from both of them, they went on a publishing spree. And with Bradbury in his final decade, he he put out more books than he'd ever put out in the rest of his career. I mean, most of these were just finishing off things that had been hanging around him for decades. And the same with Harlan, of course, because of this this drive to get definitive versions out there and to put all of all of his film scripts out as well, which delighted me. But I've not been able to keep up. There's just so much stuff coming out. Well, I've got a little uh, secret for you. A photograph that I took may turn out to be the cover art for an upcoming Harlan Ellison book. Jason Davis, the guy who's doing the, the grunt work, putting together those definitive editions, asked if it works as cover art for the design he has to work up. He'd like a photo that I took of Harlan back in 1981, when, which was the very first time I ever saw Ellison live in person at a benefit reading for a used bookstore in Boston. And uh, it was in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and he came rolling in with friends an hour late, typical, and said, I've got about 11 pages written of what is probably a 17 or 18 page story. So with your indulgence, I'll finish it here. And he pulled out his Olympia typewriter and started typing. He says, you know, talk amongst yourselves. I think there was wine and cheese and stuff. So, you know, all of us fans who'd gathered to hear him read, we started getting to know one another and hanging out and for another hour or two, and then he read this brand new story aloud to us. But while he was working, I got a picture of him in profile with a a pipe. He was still smoking in those days, working at his Olympia uh, manual typewriter. And and Jason said, you know, there are not too many pictures of Harlan actually at work at his typewriter. So if it works with the format, I'd like to use your photo on the cover of an upcoming book. I was like, yeah, okay, (laughs) cool. What was the story that he was typing? Do you remember? On the Slab. It's a retelling of the Prometheus story, and it it came out in the Angry Candy collection. There was one point where he's working away, and he looks up and he says, does anybody know what the contents of a fire extinguisher is? And a woman at the back of the room said, I know everything there is to know about fire extinguishers. And she came up to the front of the room, they put their heads together, and sure enough, when you read the story, you'll read a list of all the things that come out of a fire extinguisher. And I'm sure that gal has a a special feeling of pride when she sees that. (laughs) I'm going to have to reread that now, uh, because I don't remember that bit. But uh, what are you working on currently? Well, your listeners may have gathered by now that I'm an essayist and and not a fiction writer. Over the years, I've been a newspaper reporter, a columnist, a book and film reviewer, an interviewer, and so on, both for old-fashioned print newspaper and and for several book projects I've worked on over the years, mine and, and other people's. At the moment, I'm feeding most of my material onto a pay-to-read website for creative types called Patreon. The big writing project that's flowing onto that site is a book I'd been working on about my grandmother, the, the woman to whom I read Brad Brain Ellison and many other things in my teens. 
It's about her childhood and young adulthood in frontier Fairbanks, Alaska territory a century ago. I interviewed her in the 1980s with a cassette recorder for roughly 14 hours and have fashioned a narrative from what she told me about life in a frontier gold rush town, how she felt, the people her family knew, what they ate, how they managed without indoor plumbing or running water, how they observed the holidays in that strange location, how they handled the, the incredible cold. It, it regularly got down to 40 below and sometimes 60 below. Everything I could think of to ask her at the time. But I started this Patreon website just a little less than a year ago, end of July, when President Trump had sent federal officers to my city to assault and gas nonviolent protesters uh, as a way to divert attention from his handling of COVID and, and to shore up the fear and racism he needed to get reelected. I was furious about the lies coming out of the White House and some of our local officials about what was happening in the streets of my city. So I wrote a lot about it, most, you know, on Facebook. And I was getting literally hundreds of friend and follower requests from people outside the city, outside the state, even a few overseas who were wondering what the hell's going on there. And so eventually I launched the Patreon page so people could support my writing. My gosh, friends, family, and a handful of strangers committed to sending me a little money every month. It doesn't amount to much, but it's immensely emotionally satisfying, gratifying to be paid to write about whatever I choose to write. So I leave all the political material open unlocked so anyone can read it. The content about my grandmother is for paying customers only, although now that there are more than 40 installments online, I've been unlocking the early episodes of that too. However, I mix it up with archival material from throughout my writing career, which includes interviews with Leonard Nimoy, actor Jeff Daniels, novelist Ken Kesey, singer-songwriter Hoyt Axton, the guy who composed Joy to the World, some of my book drum material, old but notable book and movie reviews, memories of my distance running days, and I can see writing a few pieces about acting and modeling in the future as well. If there are any fans of the TV series Grimm, which was shot here in Portland for six seasons, I appeared in an early episode of that too. You know, look up David J. Loftus on Facebook. I do a lot of storytelling and entertaining there day by day. And I welcome new friends and followers all the time. Look up my page on patreon.com. David Loftus, thank you very much. Thanks for having me, Phil. It's been a pleasure. My thanks once again to David Loftus for joining me this week. On my blog at bradburymedia.co.uk, I'll have links to David's web presence and links to the archived copy of his book drum essays on Something Wicked This Way Comes. And that's it for today. If you're enjoying the show, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts from. And please join me again next time. Bradbury 100 is presented and produced by Phil Nichols. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. Please subscribe using your podcast app. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, SoundCloud and all good podcast places. And you can find us on YouTube and Facebook too. For more information, head to bradburymedia.co.uk. 
www.ghostbusiness.co.uk. 